Welcome to Season 4, Episode 16 of Beyond Zero. I'm your host, Ben. Joining today is Jeff Bercy. Jeff is an author and literary critic, and he joins me from his home in Edmonton. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Hi, Ben. Thanks for having me on. You're welcome. Um, You've recently moved to Edmonton. For those of us who have never been to Canada, do you want to tell us about life over there in Alberta? It's a prairie province and a petroleum province. Um, I moved from what's called the Atlantic provinces. Uh, I was born in St. John's, Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, went to England for a few years, came back there, and in 2000, moved to Charlottetown, PEI, another Atlantic province. And I was there until 2018 when a job came up here, so I moved out west. It was the first time, uh, in a footnote kind of way, that I'd ever lived on a continental landmass. Uh, there could be some perspective of being on the margins uh, in, a, in the provinces that I've lived in, which definitely enters my writing or my way of thinking. Yeah, so it's interesting with Alberta because you were saying to me before that it's kind of, you know, not too far away from the West Coast side of things, but a few provinces in from there. But is there a big difference between those mainland provinces and the coastal provinces? I don't want to speak for British Columbia, not having lived there, but I will say that people in Atlantic Canada and the provinces I've lived in and visited uh, apart from Newfoundland, Labrador, and PEI, uh, there's Nova Scotia and New Brunswick, that many people in that area would view the province I'm in as uh, pretty rich and well-off. Mm. And those mm. provinces there are not always so. Interesting. Uh, PEI Interesting. is an example of a province that when I lived there was neither boom nor bust, but somewhere in the middle, dipping down below or a little above. Um this is economically speaking only, of course, mm. to come out here and to see in a, uh, a large northern capital city, uh, not the most northerly, because the territories, of course, are to the north of us. Um, but it is a, a different experience to live in a city of not uh, Calgary, which is south of us by three and a half hours, has one million people, perhaps a little more. Uh, Edmonton has less than that. So it's a different way of thinking out here. There's a lot of interest in agriculture, in uh, oil and gas, in uh, uh, anything to do with uh, solar. There's interest in that too, because it is a place that gets a lot of solar, uh, sun, and a lot of wind, so wind power. Um, And people here have uh, voted in a small c conservative fashion, apart from a a short blip for the last 50 years. Wow. And I'm used to working in an environment uh, in my previous occupations where things swung from liberals to conservatives and back again. Mm. Interesting. Okay. And is that because of the, like the Alberta kind of oil thing? Like, because we know so much oil comes from there. There are a lot of settlers here from different places. A lot of Ukrainians um, came here. Mm. Um, You can find Mennonites from different parts of Europe who moved here. Mm. Uh, So there's a frontier or settler 
uh, mentality that meant that people had to be self-sufficient and uh, on their own. So to some, in some areas, particularly in rural areas, there is more of an interest in uh, the sustainability that you can achieve for yourself without the help or interference, depending on the interpretation of any government. Let's move over to that East coast of Canada where you grew up. Um, especially because Charlottetown, uh, Prince Edward Island features very heavily in your book, Unidentified Man at Left of Photo. Um, do you want to tell us about growing up over that side of the country and, and what it's like over there? Cause it sounds windswept and beautiful and kind of almost like Scotland or somewhere like that. Um, St. John's Newfoundland is a port city. So um, I grew up there and I was there till I was about 20 something, 22, 23, and then went to London, England for two or three years and returned there. Um, the uh, humor of that area, which I mentioned because of the book that you've read, uh, is a black kind of humor. Um, it is a place heavily dependent upon the fisheries and now dependent upon oil as well as tourism. And the fisheries have declined with the death of the cot stocks, or the, I should say, the diminishment, severe diminishment of the cot stocks. There is a, a ruggedness to the land there in some of the uh, outport communities. Um, definitely, it, it was a, a latecomer to Canada, only joining the Confederation of Canada in 1949. Before that, it had been a British colony, which you're very familiar with, mm -hmm. and it had been its own country. So when the First World War came about, I believe, um, Newfoundland sent its own soldiers, not as part of Canada, but from Newfoundland. Mm -hmm. uh, so it has a certain independence in its mind. Uh, that can be both a strength and a weakness, like every other characteristic um, you grow up there and you just become aware of the uh, force of nature, literally, uh, wind, rain, mm -hmm. snow, drizzle. PEI is a, or was, a slightly more moderate climate uh, because it's not out in the North Atlantic as much. It's in a gulf and a strait. But of course, in just a few months ago, uh, a hurricane tore through uh, various areas in the Atlantic provinces, various hurricanes have come through at different times, which indicates a changing weather pattern and has also um, meant that people there have lost fishing wharves, piers, things like that, that they rely on. COVID-19 uh, to an island province, like PEIS, Newfoundland and Labrador is not an island province due to the mainland Labrador part. Uh, for an island province, that meant that during COVID-19, even the bridge that led to the mainland was severely restricted in its use, coming and going. Uh, planes didn't leave as much. Ferry didn't travel as much. So you can have um, you can have some experiences on an island in times like that. And of course, many places around the world, probably every place in the world, experience something unique. Uh, due to COVID. Were you glad you weren't so, living there at the time? Uh, yes. Uh, my uh, my friends there spoke about the restrictions and not being able to leave uh, easily. 
Um, I, but every place, every province had its own set of restrictions, and mm. some were more stringent and some were less stringent than others. In a place like PEI with a population of roughly, I think in 2020, it was 145,000 people, something like that. If a pandemic were to spread, it would act very quickly through the population. Mm. Many people are spread out on farms and things like that, so they might be somewhat distant from contagion. But you can't be, you know, um, you can't be entirely distant from contagion forever. Mm. Okay. Before we talk about your writing, I'm just curious to ask you about Canadian literature in general. We're having a brief chat before we started recording about, I guess, how the scene is over there. But do you want to tell us a bit more about that idea of of canlit? Canlit is seen perhaps by people not in Canada as um, a structure held up by the columns of Atwood, Ondachi, Monroe, and older figures like Stephen Leacock. Mm. Canlit, as it is today, um, some writers who are uh, uh, younger than those individuals, which is to say, you know, Stephen Leacock being dead a long time, but most other writers in Canada would be younger. Uh, sometimes have a hard time breaking into print, particularly if they're not writing in a realistic historical faction uh, kind of fiction. Mm. The experimentalists or the exploratory writers. Uh, from personal experience. I know that some publishers that say that they like that kind of work don't actually like that kind of work. <laughs> they still want the warm, fuzzy characters that readers can relate to and something that can probably win a prize. Um, a person like Lee D. Thompson, who's in Moncton, New Brunswick, and whose book, A Pastoral, uh, came out from Corona Samus death, or some of my books have come out. Um, He's a writer who uh, should have come out years ago. Um, and if publishers were more uh, receptive to works with a different bent, they would have published it. Everything comes in its time, but um, to, you know, to a writer who's trying to get published, it can seem like an awfully long wait. A monolithic apparatus is that historical fiction, realism, is what will get a place in the marketplace be applauded on radio, uh, win prizes, be noticed. Um, so exploratory writers have, as they do everywhere, uh, a more difficult path to follow. Yeah, it strikes me that the landscape over there seems very similar to the landscape here in terms of population size and what publishers seem to want for mainstream press. Um, yeah, it does seem quite similar that they do want a lot of those big realist works or historical fiction and things like that. Yeah. All right, let's talk about your writing. You started out as a playwright. You've written a number of novels, short stories. You've done interviews, uh, criticism. Do you want to tell us a bit about your upbringing and how you got into writing? Um, I Well, like everybody, I read when I was young. I had to read the same books over and over because we didn't have many. Um, at some point, I came across books, which we can perhaps talk about later, that, that inspired me this way or that way. I originally wanted to be an actor. 
And then I realized that for everybody's sake, I'd be better off not being an actor. Um, so I went to uh, writing plays. Um, I remember reading uh, in various plays in university, but also outside university um, courses, I mean. Um, and I thought that's that's a, perhaps something I could try, uh, the handling of dialogue. Eventually, I managed to actually write a play after some false starts of things that look like plays but weren't actually very dramatic. Um, and by that time, I was ready to move into writing something else. Um, it took a while for those for the the one play that I would say is an actual play to be uh, put off. But uh, the impetus was playwriting, and then I thought, I'll try my hand at short stories. Hmm. So I moved into short stories. Interesting. After that, I thought, well, uh, I'll try my hand at a novel. And, of course, it was a somewhat historical novel, and then I had to do research of a certain time period. The novel has never seen the light of day. But it was a good learning experience. At the same time, I was writing other short stories, which eventually wound up as the collection on Impalpable Certain Rest, also put out by Corona Samistat. Mm -hmm. um, to go from one to the other was like a relief. Well, I've had enough of one, and this idea has occurred to me. It's a short story, so I'll spend some time on that. And then once done with that, turn back to the novel. Um, so, yeah, I wrote a lot of short stories in a three-year period of time, I believe. And um, some came more easily than others. Okay. Do you want to tell us about your work as a critic? And also, do you want to just take us through some of your, uh, I guess, what you've got out in terms of your novels and short stories at the moment? My work as a critic. Okay, we'll start with that. Um, I did some critical reviewing for... Auburn was the literary review when I lived in London, England. And uh, a friend, a former friend of mine was writing for them. And he suggested, why don't you give it a try? So I did. I was moderately successful. I wrote three reviews. That was it. But I wasn't pleased necessarily with the tone I took. I thought, not that I was too young or too shallow, but I needed to be more sympathetic to the book at hand. And I realized that I wasn't being as sympathetic as I could be to um, what the book was trying to do. So the callowness of youth, I guess. Um, there was a break of some years, and then somebody asked me, would you like to do some reviewing for this journal that we're starting? And I said, okay, sure, I'll, I'll try it again. Perhaps the passage of time has helped. And then I got fully into it and then uh, approached Canadian journals, and this is the early 2000s, and started writing for what's called Books in Canada, which is not published now for quite some time, um, and other journals eventually, uh, the Winnipeg Review, uh, the uh, uh, Numero Sank, Rain Taxi, Review of Contemporary Fiction from Dalkey, and just kept reviewing books. People would send me them. Maybe I'd ask for them, maybe I hadn't. And I'd try to do the best I could for that book. And in this time, 
when I was writing these reviews, I was still trying to get my novels, my manuscripts accepted, but that wasn't going anywhere. So I was in that peculiar position of um, having lots of nonfiction accepted pretty quickly and not having any fiction accepted. Mm. So I just kept going and I figured at some point things will change. And eventually in November 2009, things did. So I still kept writing criticism after the publication of the first novel in 2010 and just have kept going. I've tapered off in the last few years because during COVID, uh, the occupation I work in as an editor, there was an increased demand on my mental energies. And so by the end of the day, I was simply wiped out from the work that had been done, which was almost um, uh, ceaseless. And a lot of it sometimes had to do with COVID. So you're in a COVID environment. You're not allowed to talk to people person to person. You're working on COVID stuff. You come home and you just, the last thing I want to think about is how do I write about this person's book? I just need to maybe watch a fun movie to take mm-hmm. my mind off <laughs> some of the stuff of that day. Wow. Okay. But I have enough uh, criticism for two books of uh, selected criticism that have come out. So that first novel, what was that one called? It's called Verbatim, a novel. It's not just called Verbatim, because you need the parallel structure. Mm-hmm. Verbatim says this is fact, and a novel says this isn't fact. And mm-hmm. it's set in a fictional Canadian parliament, much like a state legislature for Australia. It would be the speakings of various pol- political people who are representatives of the constituents, the writings that they uh, stand for and has just debates it has a list of who the members are and inter-office memos that's it there's no narrator who knows everything there's no limited narrator mm-hmm. and the debates are shown to be edited therefore you really don't get the real debate or maybe you do but you're not really sure which is where where it's real and where it's been tidied up Interesting. Okay. All right. Well, let's move on to Unidentified Man at Left of Photo. It came out through Corona Samizdat in 2020. It's an uncategorizable novel. It's set around Charlottetown, uh, Prince Edward Island, and it's about the art of writing, about life in Charlottetown, and it features a range of text types and eschews the traditional plot structure or characterization. It's full of pictures and diagrams. I was trying to work out where you're going with it, and I'm still not sure I quite know um, it also is in a really interesting size, but can you tell us about the novel and the inspiration behind writing the book? The title came to me in the late 1990s because I, I guess I read some book, a biography of somebody perhaps, and there's always these photos where people are at a party, the person is the subject of the biography is there, but there's always somebody off to the left who's the unidentified man. Mm-hmm. And I thought, unidentified man had left a photo. That would be what? What kind of book would that be? I didn't know. I just jotted the title down. Parenthetically, I'll say St. John's is, uh, as I've said, a port city. It's a more urban city, not urban like Toronto or Sydney, Australia, uh, Australia would be. Um, but it's urban. And I moved in mid-2000 to uh, 
Charlottetown, which is the capital city of Prince Edward Island. That is not as urban. It's more rural urban. And this title was still there in my notes. And there was life going on, and I was working there or not working there, depending on what year we're talking about. Until maybe 2004, early 2005, I had this voice. And we can come back to that when we talk about, uh, if we talk about uh, books that meant something to me. This voice appeared in my head, like, how do I address, after living here four years, roughly, this life here in Prince Edward Island? And I thought, well, someone wanted, I don't, I don't know enough, having only lived here four years, to talk thoroughly about PEI society. But I have some thoughts about certain things. But I'm not a person who's within a lot of uh, establishment groups, right? Not on a board of anything. Um, I was with the, the Writers Guild of PEI, but that was about it. And I had my occupation as editor. So I was in a bureaucracy. And then the title came back to me. I could be the unidentified man that left a photo, or I could create a persona because the narrator of the book is not Jeff Bursey. And the, uh, the way to talk about a place can be, well, could be historical, but that's so too much done, uh, overtried, overdone, a beaten path that poses no technical challenges. Why not tell it in a variety of ways? Why do I have to stick to one way? So I chose a variety of styles. I took photographs, as you mentioned. I drew a pathetic drawing, <laughs> which if you've seen it, you probably will agree it's pretty badly drawn. Mm. But I didn't care. The idea was to present something that looked DIY. And the very beginning of the book says, you can name these characters whatever you want. They like the food you like. They work at occupations that you know about. I'm not going to go through a whole lot of detail, says the narrator, to make a backstory, because that's the realism that I'm working against in Canlet. So there are a reason for why it starts off, shall we say, modestly, with some familiar things. Anybody who's read a book in Russian or a book from Russia where a character is given a first letter and then a dash mm -hmm. or a long line where the, you could fill in the name or it's the name of the village. That's going to be very familiar to them. They can fill it in as they wish. As the book goes on, you get more and more ways of presenting material until you end with, not to give anything away, the climatic event, which occurs. And I wanted to progress the reader, particularly Canadian readers, into saying this starts like a book that you've read, but it isn't like a book that you read. We, we're going to try some new things here for you. It wouldn't be new to someone necessarily who's read a lot of modernist or postmodernist fiction, but in Canada, with the emphasis on realism and the historical fiction, there's not a lot of those kinds of devices that are used. And I thought it's more well past time. It's I started thinking of this voice in 2004, and I started writing things down soon after that and had a draft finished in 2013. There were life events that occurred that interrupted the whole process um, or paused the process. 
So by the time I had it finished, I knew that I was writing something that was a little different or very different from what people in Canada would be used to reading. Yes, it is certainly different. And it's funny because you do kind of encompass some of those elements of the historical novel or the realist novel, but then you completely subvert them. And there's scenes like on golf courses and you include, I think, some real people who live in Charlottetown as well. One of the things you do really interestingly is portray this place in a way that I don't think has been done before because it kind of gives us a almost like a guidebook perspective, but from this uh, fictional standpoint. Do you want to talk to us about, I guess, using some of those realist things within Charlottetown? Sure. First off, the Charlottetown is a Charlottetown of the narrator's own imagining. Mm -hmm. And uh, you recall when you read the the index, not the index, but the index, Mm -hmm. that under every letter from A to Z, there's a sentence which has nothing to do with what was referred to in the book. Mm. But it's another narrative voice talking about the narrator that you've just read. Mm. So the purpose of that was to say everything that you've just read is all a narrative. So whatever realism is present isn't really real. It's all still a story. Mm. So the realism that is there, which is subverted, as you point out, and thank you for doing that, is subverted still further by the fact that someone says, another narrative voice at the end says, that narrator that you've spent time with used to be a different kind of person until they started hanging out with other kinds of narrators. Mm -hmm. And this is a way of saying that Canadian literature could do with some international flavoring, not of subjects, topics, people from other countries writing Canadian books, but different kinds of methods. There was a there's a writer named Lisa Moore, who some years ago came out with a book, the title of which I just can't remember right now, but it was 10 or 15 years ago. And she was likened to using some of the methods of Virginia Woolf. That could be totally appropriate. But if that's 2010 or 2005, that's still 80 years retardation, if you will, of growth of the Canadian literature. Mm -hmm. There should be more people aware of things that can be done differently. The, The charlottetown that's presented, streets aren't quite right. If you were to try and use this book to walk around charlottetown, should you ever go there, Ben, Mm. you would find yourself lost Mm. because the streets just don't match up. And anybody who's in PEI and knows Charlottetown um, will know that there's, these are gross errors. Streets do not join. The narrator says that they do. And that's because everything that we present is our picture of what we present. So realism doesn't exist. It's an aesthetic point, not an ideological point, that, and also a philosophical point. Your world is very different from mine. But we both agree that there's a real world for convenience sake. Mm. I'm trying to question that in terms of what Canadian realism is. When I was writing it, the purpose was to have fun and to express some things about PEI life, but to express things about writing and not do it in a heavy-handed manner, 
or didactic manner, but to, to have some amusement. And hopefully the reader would find that amusing too. So the only purpose of realism in there is to subvert it. And then at the very end, the subversion is subverted itself. <laughs> Excellent. So the reader is, thro is thrown back on having to make a judgment mm -hmm. at the end of the very last page, which is not a judgment that the narrator makes for them. Mm -hmm. It leaves it open-ended for a reader to come to their own conclusions. Did you have some specific inspirations behind writing the books in terms of other authors or other novels that you've read? Uh, yes. Uh, Wyndham Lewis, who's not fashionable. Mm. Uh, I don't know if he ever was, but um, he was certainly notorious and uh, talked about, had a uh, a hard view. Uh, satire should be hard. And you can see a lineage which one of your countrymen, I think, Emmett Stinson, has traced from Wyndham Lewis to um, and precursors to Wyndham Lewis to uh, William Gaddis and Gilbert Sorrentino. So in reading some of Sorrentino's um, work from 2003 or four on, The Moon and Its Flight, for instance, I saw the same kind of hardness, the approach to satire, rather than a toothless satire that in Canlet is more common. Uh, Andre Alexis is uh, one of his books called A. Um, he's very toothless. It pretends to have fun with Margaret Atwood and other people, but it's really not. It's it's just, I'm having a little chuckle with you. And I think we need more teeth. So the Wyndham Lewis, uh, Between the Apes of God, uh, I thought that's a kind of satire that I enjoy. And then I encountered Gilbert Sorrentino years later, and I thought that's kind of in the same line. And William Gaddis's party scenes remind me of Wyndham Lewis's party scenes. Mm. Um, so I'd say these books, uh, the recognitions in particular from Gaddis, um, combined to help me come up with a voice. But the moon and its flight helped me think about how is it I want to shape the material so that even though it it could tell a conventional story, but I don't want it to tell a conventional story. That and Olympian constraints, because I came across Olipo at some point in my reading life, and I thought, that's fascinating, mm -hmm. how you prevent yourself from doing other things by giving yourself a restriction. Mm -hmm. so, so I think those are the, the main influences. Within this book, have you placed any Olympian restrictions on yourself? There was no attempt at making a full character. Mm. Whenever I made a character or, or was in danger of making somebody appear to be a character, I then, oh, I can't do that. Mm. <laughs> that's that's going too far, right? Let me put in something odd. Let me interrupt the whole conversation. Let me have somebody present a conversation which I'm getting bored with. Suddenly mm. say, the narrative will say, well, this is too boring. Let's move on. Yeah. So... I wanted to have my, I read recently that the expression is eat your cake and have it too, not have your cake and eat it too. Mm -hmm. But I wanted both. So mm -hmm. I thought to myself, if I can write a novel that doesn't look like a novel, 
but it's a novel because it's a work of fiction that can have up to a certain point some figure that is almost in danger of becoming a character or someone that a reader might warm to and then totally undercut that and back away from it and maybe never revisit that character again or not for several chapters. Mm -hmm. I want to have that so that a reader thinks, oh, I might just get what I'm used to getting and then have it stymied. Mm -hmm. Because why why give readers everything that they're used to? Books are meant to be new and different. That brings me nicely back to this question because when you present this book, when you pick up this book, it's a tiny little thing. It's probably half the size of a regular paperback book. It's more in line with the old guidebooks that you know we used to take traveling that you could put in your pocket or an old phrase book that you take with you or even something like those old pamphlets that used to be given out by people on the street. Um, I was thinking about this story about some uh, homeless book that was distributed to lots of different people to tell them what trains they could get on um, in terms of cargo and where they could get off and things like that. And it kind of reminds me of that. And again, it subverts that idea that it is a novel because it does appear like something of a guidebook or something of a pamphlet. In the in 2008, I think it was, 2007 possibly, I was approached by the Department of Tourism in PEI to write a piece on uh, the province, uh, like an introductory 1,500 words to the visitor brochure, as it was called. And I'd never done that before, and they got my name somehow. And I thought, well, I could either say no, or I could say yes. So I decided to say yes, even though I'd never done it before. They accepted what I wrote. They recommended me later to um, a publisher called Folders, which puts out guidebooks, as you probably know. Mm-hmm. Like It's like Lonely Planet and Fromps. And, uh, so Folders said, could you please go around PEI and update the PEI section. So I did that two books of theirs in a row. They're separated by two years each. So yes, there is a guidebook quality. And I thought, well, I've gone around the whole island. And I I really did go around the whole island writing about bed and breakfast, mini golf, uh, fishing, uh, shacks, uh, cabins that you could rent, hotels, whatever attractions there might be to see. Uh, when I started, when I was back into writing this book after the life interruption, some of that, oh yeah, I can make this look like a guide to PEI by saying this is how life is lived here mm-hmm. in Charlottetown in particular, a little bit in Summerside, which is another real city, but yet not have it quite be that. But a guidebook is just another form of, of a person's interpretation of a place so it's as much of a fiction as anything else. Mm. And the size of the book, uh, which is a Corona Samstad, uh frequent form, is the pocket book like Penguins would be uh, back in the day, um, and, and easily put in your back pocket. I should mention your publisher, Corona Samstad, because they do so many interesting things, and Rick is clearly a fascinating fellow. Do you want to tell us about working with them? Yeah, uh, he's a great fellow to work with. Uh, our, uh, we met, I think, via Goodreads, I believe, because of something that he wrote about on Goodreads, and I saw it, and it was a book perhaps that I'd read. 
um, the uh, impetus for getting published by him was I sent him a link or two to some stories of mine that had appeared in journals online. Mm -hmm. And uh, eventually, when he had set up Corona Sam's Dad, he said, do you have anything you'd like to publish? And I said, well, as a matter of fact, the book that you we're talking about here mm. i have that in hand and his policy is never to read the books before they get published when they're fresh from the printer he's got his box of them he takes them home then he reads them so that requires a lot of confidence on a writer's part to have i really done this okay am i going to be embarrassed mm. by what's out there, you know by this going out there without any intervening hands um that's why if you look at the back of the book, you'll see the blurb from Rick mm -hmm. saying that I haven't I haven't read this, you know. Why do I care? He uses more colorful language than that, but I won't say that here. <laughs> uh, so the other books have come out with him, and we've had conversations about different writers, particularly in Canada, some I've known about and recommended, or he's heard they've heard of him and they contact him and he asks me. Mm -hmm. Um yeah, it's always been a smooth experience and a very friendly one, and uh, I have great respect for him. Well, I want to ask you as well, and we might cover this when I talk about what you're currently reading, but are there some books through them that you would recommend us go and pick up? Well, here's a funny thing. I have not read one Corona Sounds Dead book. Wow. Apparently, they started coming out in 2020. Mm -hmm. And as I mentioned, I was, shall we say, swamped at in my job uh, by stuff and 2021 same thing uh, there were also certain things that just happened and I was writing more some stuff um, I, I have read books that I suggested to Rick or parts of books which he asked my opinion on and our books that I've not read, but I know the author because I read other books of theirs. And I say, this would be a perfect fit for Corona Samistad. Mm -hmm. But because I've been writing a new novel or a new book, I have stayed away for a little while from reading fiction that I would find um, engaging in a certain way that might interfere with my own writing process. Mm -hmm. I, think it was, I think William Gaddis said that when he was writing fiction, he didn't want to read fiction that was too demanding or too much like his own so he read jay mcinerney mm -hmm. so that was <laughs> you know our our present comparator might be i don't know franzen yeah um so i've been reading a lot of nonfiction, and i think i need to keep that to maintain the voice that i have in my head for the book that i'm reading i know that or flipping through different pages of the many books that Corona Samstad has put out. These look like fascinating books that I would get totally lost in. But I need to keep my discipline. Mm -hmm. So I'm well, done with this book, which has its own challenges, then I can move into reading that. Well, can you tell us a little bit about this project you're working on? Mm -hmm. It's about uh an author who, apart from keeping various kinds of journals for the writing that he does, is keeping this miscellaneous journal 
he encounters at some point a real author. I mean, an author who's living in the world, who I'm not going to mention, um, who's publishing to this day. And things slowly change and remind him of things that occurred to him, which we you get an inkling of here and there. At some point, he's going to encounter a figure that he detests. Not it's it, This is an all first person, and it's all just little memoir notes. So it's, it's not actually an in-person uh, confrontation. By the end of it, something will have occurred. That's very vague, isn't it? It's quite vague. <laughs> <laughs> By the end, something happens. Okay. Yeah, think... The important thing is to keep that narrator's voice for me mm. rigid in its beginning, bent a little as the book goes on, antagonistic later and changed at the end, mm. perhaps still the same, but with more depth. Okay. Do you have a working reading title? Something like, yes, but I'm not going to say what it is. Okay. <laughs> so reading something like um, A Bend at Circuity or uh, The Cult of the Cactus Boots, mm-hmm. both Kronos Amistad novels that have been highly acclaimed. And if your readers don't already have them, I would suggest, even though they know I haven't read them, I would suggest that they would be worthwhile reads. Mm-hmm. Um, to read those books, which are dense, Still with material and totally different in their uh, approaches, one from the other and from mine, might throw off my own way of creating this voice. Mm. And I think many fiction writers and nonfiction writers do the same thing. They stay away from certain kinds of books that might inadvertently, accidentally distort their own thinking. And so, like, horses we have to have our blinkers on Mm. cool all right let's talk about your gateway books what were some of the books that opened the world of literature for you this is in no particular order but it will start chronologically and then after that all hell breaks loose Mm. Uh, the uh, i mentioned that uh, we didn't have a lot of books Mm. in my house there was a flood and some books were damaged, children's books of my siblings who are all older. So the books that were present to me when I got around to reading or still being read too, there were many children's tales. There was no um, uh, Hans Christian Andersen, Brothers Grimm, that sort of thing. They were how and why. I don't know if that's a name that you can look it up, Google it. They were a kind of magazine style how and why book of chemistry. How and why book of astronomy. These are things that I read as well as the six volume Golden Atlas. Uh, actually, my, my sister would read to me the How and Why book of animals. Mm-hmm. And though I couldn't read, I had memorized it. And so I knew when she skipped passages. So I would say, Hey, you skipped a passage. Even though I couldn't read the words themselves, I was just on that edge where mm-hmm. you can't read and then you can read. Um, so I read these things that were completely not for children in the usual sense, but they were influential in making me think of, of facts and figures and table charts and railways and what are the capitals of all these countries and all these continents. 
Uh, later, I read some science fiction. It didn't really stick with me. I, I admired some other writers, but after a while, I just wasn't interested. And then I read pulp books, mm. The Shadow, The Spider, Doc Savage, The Avenger, uh, G8, and these battle aces. And these stayed with me and helped influence some of my thinking. And this will be the amusing part, perhaps, uh, Groucho Marx's books. Mm. Because I was not very verbal as a child. And I needed to become more verbal. Uh, and some of these books, just by total accident, uh, helped me change at a crucial time. Mm. Um, they gave me more verbal dexterity. And I hadn't had that. Um, then in university, uh, which I entered when I was 16 years old, uh, went for the usual stuff that you use and learn in university and read and don't really appreciate, and you don't have to. And then in an American literature course, uh, John Dos Passos is the big money, which is told in a variety of ways. And I thought, this is something very different from anything I've ever read. And then I discovered Henry Miller, Tropic of Cancer, Black Spring, and Tropic of Capricorn. Mm. And those, the first book in particular, taught me that you could write in any way that you wanted. You didn't have to be writing in an established sense or tradition. It allowed freedom. And the, there were no books on the syllabus of the university that allowed that. It was outside the university that I came across these books. Uh, in high school, I had read uh, Hedda Gabler, as we all did, and I thought that that was a fine play. And later, much later, got to see it acted in London. And, I mean, Ibsen is so great. Um, so some of those plays, the plays I studied in university, some of them were interesting, some of them were not, but they helped me shape my way of thinking about what I wanted to do as a playwright. Uh, later, um, while writing about Henry Miller as a thesis topic, uh, I started reading William Gaddis, The Recognitions, and mm -hmm. I was a, definitely a gateway to another way of thinking and uh, thinking about writing and just another way of thinking. Some years prior to that, there was Blake Sundaras and Maura Vagine, mm -hmm. and later his memoirs. Uh, the Astonished Man, Planus and Lice in particular, because they came out, or I read them, in about oh, one after the other, I think. And Sky, the fourth one, came out much later. But those books were like, how does one write like this and have adventures like this? Mm. And this is just totally bizarre and totally unique. Um, and in the early 2000s, Gilbert Sorrentino, The Moon and Its Flight, was the first book of his that I read, and then I read other books by him. Uh, in the mid 2000s, late 10s, uh, well, you know, my uh, my struggle. Who doesn't like all six volumes of that? Mm. A lot of people don't. I realize, but <laughs> the first volume was like a like a thriller in a way. 
I was just reading it till three in the morning until I finished it because I just could not stop. Mm. It was so addictive. Um, so these, all these books and some other incidental ones like Mervyn Peake's uh, uh, Titus books, um, certainly all contributed to helping me think outside a curriculum, outside an established way of thinking. Wyndham Lewis again, the uh, Apes of God and Tar and some of his nonfiction books, Root Assignment in particular. Um, they all just helped me think uh, writing differently. And consequently, when I started to write, I had these um, books in my head, some of them, which probably explains why many Canadian publishers didn't accept my work until mm. late. Interesting. Okay. Let's talk about some of the books you're currently reading or you've recently enjoyed or you're looking forward to, even though you're not reading a huge amount of fiction at the moment. Um, I just finished reading a book called, I want to make sure I get the title right, Entangled Life, How Fungi Make Our Worlds, Change Our Minds and Shape Our Futures by Merlin Sheldrake. And I'm sure many people who listen to you and you yourself have read it. And it's simply fascinating to learn about the mycelial network and what it can do and what its abilities are and how much we don't know about it. The little we do know about it is uh, revelatory, I'm sure. Um, I've been reading a few books about uh, travel by Colin Thubron, an English writer, uh, in, in his journeys through Russia and along the Amur River. Um, I'm looking forward to reading a book called Spark, The Life of Electricity and the Electricity of Life by Timothy Jorgensen, mm -hmm. um, because I have an interest in electrical matters. Um, currently, I'm reading a book by someone I know. Um, he was a PI, uh, University of Pr Prince of Rana professor, Richard Lem. I say was, but he still could be. Um, it's uh, a memoir of his that came out in 2021 called Imagined Truths. He was originally from the United States, but became a draft dodger and moved to Canada mm. and had his career in Canada. Uh, a fine gentleman I've met many times. He's mentioned in the book, as you might recall. Mm. Uh, there are uh, a number of events that he hosted, which contributed to the cultural and literary life of Prince Edward Island, and he was always easy to chat with. So uh, when I heard about this book, I thought I must get this, and I just started reading it a few days ago. We'll take a quick break here on Minute Zero. We're speaking with Jeff Bercy. Are you sick of your life and you want a new start? Does the burden of family weigh heavily on you? Are you craving a different sort of sea change? Well if you are, why not join the BTZ submarine crew going to see the Titanic? There may be an implosion and you may die horribly, or you may end up with a brand new identity and living on a billionaire's island. Use promo code TOOFUCKINSOON and you could get 10% off your voyage. We're back on Beyond the Zero, it's time for Jeff's Desert Island Books. I would say I had to bring the first volume of Asgard's books 
uh, it's just my struggle, book one. I know that in the United States, they have to give these things names, but I'll just stay with that number. Yeah. Um, it was a definite family, say, I think it was. Yeah, um, I would uh, I would just have to say that that is just some of the most gripping writing uh, that I'd read for a while. Um, and about such mundane things, N not the death in the family, clearly, but, you know, about getting beer, mm. you know. Um, Blaise and Verse, uh, uh, I would say more of Jean and the Dan Yak books I would take with me, and maybe one of the memoirs. Uh, Gaddis is the Recognitions, or J.R.R. to toss up, depending on the kind of mood one would be in. Um, that's why Sargasso Sea by Jean Rice, because that's a brilliant way of approaching a figure that. Is present in a historical novel, mm. but approaching it and giving it its own life. Uh, as much as I don't want to write about characters necessarily, I don't denigrate people who do write characters well. It's just not my taste to do that, but I can appreciate what somebody does. Um, how many is that? Five, I think that was six? five, yeah. Okay. Um, I would say that. I want to take along something by Lee D. Thompson, whether it's a pastoral or hopefully a new book that he may have coming out soon uh, because of, uh, well, because of the bonds of friendship, um, as well as an appreciation for his true creative talent. Mm. There would be uh, a book by John Cooper Powys, probably the Glastonbury Romance which is certainly long enough to while away the time mm. and rich enough to make that time seem filled. Uh, and I take along a, a book of prayers called Baha'i Prayers. So I think that would be my dead island books. Okay. And the Baha'i prayers, those are like the Baha'i, like the garden kind of religion thing? Uh, yes, it's the Baha'i faith. I'm not a member of the faith, yeah, but I'm familiar with it. And... Uh, at different times in my life, uh, saying those prayers has helped. Interesting. Okay. What got you into that? Where did you find those? Oh, I was married at one point mm -hmm. uh, to a Baha'i uh, for wow. some years. Many different fine people who are Baha'is. Um, I appreciated it, particularly coming from a Roman Catholic upbringing, which was uh, strenuous at times and not at all filled with love or humanity. In fact, it was filled with criminality, as we all later found out when various people were arrested and thrown in jail, mm. who wore the cloth. Uh, and the school uh, that I went to was barbaric, and uh, not as barbaric as some other schools, but certainly not living up to a Roman Catholic ideal. Mm. So coming across a world religion that actually doesn't have figures in power over you, and... Uh, is open to all religions uh was certainly uh, a change for me and uh, a welcome change if any reader there uh, or listener to you uh, has uh, picked up mirrors on which dust has fallen um, they would find if they looked that there are certain things that uh, bring out the baha'i faith but it's done very subtly 
and it was done subtly so as to make it amusing for me and make it more difficult for me to do. Uh, the theme here might be that I like to make things difficult for myself. <laughs> All right. On that note, I should probably let you go. But before I do, do you want to tell us where we can catch up with you online and where we can go and grab your books? I have a website, jeffbercy.ca. Uh, the books are available, some from Amazon, verbatim a novel, and the mirrors on which dust has fallen come out from Verbivoracious Press. And if you were to go to any Amazon outlet, whatever country you might be in, it might say temporarily unavailable, but because it's print on demand, once an order is made, those books would be in your home. Hmm. So you might very much like verbatim a novel, Ben. Hmm, um, I think I'll have to pick it up. Corona Samistad, of course, their website has my latest book, Assume a Position, Considerations and Interviews, which is a collection of criticism and interviews with uh, Sam Savage, who's a tremendous writer, passed away a few years ago. Uh, Esti Krostowska, a Polish-Canadian writer, another wonderful writer who's writing things that no other Canadian writer could do. And uh, Michelle Butter-Hallett, a uh, Canadian writer from Newfoundland and Labrador who is making her own path um, against some odds. Uh, An Impalpable Certain Rest, the collection of short stories, and of course, Unidentified Man and Left a Photo, all mm -hmm. from Corona Samistat and from John Hunt, Zero Books. There's Centering the Margins, which is another collection of reviews from 2016, sorry, 2015. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. And congratulations on your writing. I'm really intrigued to read more. Thank you very much, Ben, for having me on. It's been a real pleasure to talk with you. Thanks once again to Jeff Bercy. Check out the show notes for all the details. You can find us on X and Instagram at Beyond Zero Pod, and you can email us at beyondzeropod at gmail.com. Don't forget to support this podcast by heading over to patreon.com and searching for Beyond Zero. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back very soon.